All right, and we're recording. Um, so, hey, Trip. Uh, I think we've interacted on the the Discord server a little bit, but uh, we've never talked face or screen to screen before. Mm, yes. Um, so, uh, you came out on Paul's channel today. Um, and, but you've been kind of around, you've been on that video with Esther before. Um, and was that, was that kind of the first video of, uh, that, that you put out? I think that's probably the first one. Yeah. I, I've, I've done other, um, uh, I've done other things, um, in terms of editing books and online, uh, articles and that kind of stuff, um, for, various publications but that was the first one that i actually ever did where it was a live discussion so um yeah so the one with adam and esther was kind of my first foray into that um again i have a like a day job so this is not (laughs) um this is just a hobby of mine so um yeah so i think probably the first one with with adam and esther and i because i like both of them and they're both friends of mine um was the first um one that i did and then and then uh paul to uh you know we recorded that a little while ago and then he he posted it today and then um and then i think he and i and esther are going to do one in the future on verbaki so that's fun how'd you how'd you get to know uh adam and esther uh adam i got to know honestly just through twitter um uh i i found his uh his video series on um uh, one of my big problems with the new atheists is that they're not scientific right and uh, a lot of their criticisms of religion not it's not just that like if you stop that it's not true we can disagree, but I, I kind of get where you're, where you're coming at. But um, a lot of the new atheists say, well, it's not only not true, but it's bad. Mm-hmm. And that is a very not scientific way of looking at this problem because of its... So Brett Weinstein um, gave a really good definition, I think, of, of what's adaptive or a good test of um, telling what's adaptive. Um, and what he said was, okay, if what you're saying is costly, if, if a particular trade is costly, it's persistent and, um, it's complex, then it's adaptive. It has to be right. because ev- evolution would have weeded that out a long time ago. And so you think about religion, you say, well, is it costly? Well, yeah, it's costly. Yeah. Uh, like you, you tithe, you go to church, you, you dedicate time and money and all kinds of things to the religion that you're adhering to. So yeah, it's costly for sure. Okay. Um, is it complex? It's very complex. It can't be boiled down to a single gene mutation or anything else like that. So it's complex. Um, and it's persistent. It hasn't like, it's been around for a while. Um, right. however find it. So it's adaptive. And so what I liked about Adam's channel was he was just saying, Hey, I'm an atheist, but what do you want me to do? Like, this can't be bad. Um, and, and that kind of sense. And so I, I felt like he was an honest actor. Um, and we, we started interacting on Twitter. Um, 
about that and um and esther i found through uh honest her first article that i found of hers was when she wrote you know sam sam harris asks questions that uh jordan peterson can't answer um and that went kind of viral and jordan peterson uh retweeted it and said this was a good article and that kind of stuff and so um, and so that's how I, I, I found Esther. Um, and so again, we started interacting over Twitter and that kind of stuff. And so, um, so that's, that's kind of how I got in touch with both of them. Um, what was honestly just through finding their content and interacting with them online. Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. Um, I saw Brett Weinstein, not debated, kind of had a discussion with Richard Dawkins in Chicago. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure if that ever made it to YouTube. I think they might have botched the recording or someone put up. I think, I think that they got, yeah, I think that they got that, that whole like scam. Um, <laughs> that, sorry, my dog. Um, just barked. Um, uh, I think that they got that whole scam. Um, well, that? that company that was. Pangburn. Yeah, Pangburn um, that, uh, that recorded it. I, guess I, I, it did end up making it. I don't know to YouTube, but it didn't end up making it out. So I've watched it, but, um, but yeah, it, it took, a, it took a long time. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Brad basically got Richard to admit that, uh, that religion must be in some sense adaptive and some sense effective. I don't know how you could say anything other than that from a scientific standpoint. Yeah. And I would also add uh, to, to, to when discussing humans, if it's like universal or culturally widespread across very different kinds of culture, then that also seems to suggest that it's adaptive too. Exactly. At some point you're just like, well, if every culture um, exhibits the same impulses and that kind of stuff, then at some point you can't say that it's bad um because it would have been weeded out if it's if it's really maladaptive if it's really bad for us as a species then why would you right. why would it why would it last this long so yeah no i totally i totally agree I, and so that's why that's why i like adam's channel because even though he's an atheist he's trying to um he's trying to be honest about it um yeah. i don't agree with him in a lot of ways um and 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 Obviously, we, we come to very different conclusions, but I do think that he's trying to be honest. And so that's why I was like, I can talk to a guy like that, and Esther can as well, because he is being honest about it. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and respectful to, uh, oh, no. while having, yeah. And he is the nicest guy, just talking to him after, like, before and after the video and offline and that kind of stuff. He is, He's a genuinely respectful and good person. So I have no qualms talking with someone like that. It's a, it's a, it is really the definition of a good faith conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, it showed that way uh, listening to it too. Yeah. Um, even though you guys were a little bit at cross-firing, I think. Oh, no, no. We, 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 were, we were orthogonal in all kinds of ways, for sure, um, and talking about it. But it was a good faith conversation. In the ways that we were orthogonal, it wasn't because of bad faith. It wasn't because we were trying to take the other person wrong. It was because we just weren't speaking the same language or, or meeting kind of eye to eye on some of the points yeah. that we're trying to make. But it wasn't... It wasn't bad faith, so I appreciate yeah. that. 
yeah, it, you maybe had slightly different expectations or something, but but it was still worth listening to. Yeah. Um, so it, it sounds like you and I do similar things professionally. Uh, mm -hmm. which was part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you, not to just talk shop about work or something, but it seems like we probably have a lot in common and mm -hmm. um, uh, have some similar perspectives that way. Um, so the the subject that you and Paul talked about on the video that came out today is that, well, you guys covered a bunch of different things. Um, yeah. Kind of right there in the middle, you were talking about um, personhood and agency and kind of free will sort of stuff and how artificial intelligence and things fit into that. Um, and I thought that was, that was the most uh, interesting to me of the subjects that you covered, but you kind of moved on uh, relatively quickly. So I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking more about that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, so I guess, so I, I, we, I commented on your video right before I messaged you um, about, um, do, you, do you think that all of our agency, all of our free will, or all of our decision-making can be boiled down to the brain, essentially? Or do you think that as Christians, we need to maintain some sort of metaphysical or supernatural component like a, a soul or a spirit or something? So it's a hard question for me because I, I'm, I, so as you, as you probably realize from the, the video, I'm a Thomist. And so saying boiled down to the brain um, is, is a little bit confusing mm -hmm. because in the, in the Thomistic like Aristotelian framework matter in itself is I'm going I'm to go back to Peterson matter in itself is chaos matter without form is chaos mm -hmm. and so um, boiling saying I can you boil down the 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 soul or whatever to the brain um, doesn't really make sense because the brain as just matter um, no, that's, that's not something that actually, um, it doesn't, it, it, so I think that, and this is my problem with Verveke, and this is something that I think that Esther and I and Paul will, will probably talk about, is just because you can describe what's going on in your brain, um, and say, well, this corresponds to a mind state. Um, doesn't mean that the brain produces the mind state. This is not, this is a non sequitur. You need more premises um, in order to make that statement. And so I don't think that you can say, well, boiling it down to the mind state, that's all we are. That's a reductionist view. And I very much don't agree with it. Um, and so in the Thomistic standpoint, you're like, no, Actually, the matter is behaving according to the form that it is. And so in a Thomistic stamp, uh, kind of um, in a Thomistic framework, you would say, actually, the soul is the primary substance, not the matter. Um, because you would say, for instance, you would say that is your brain. Right. It's your so like and, and Aristotelian um argumentation and, and Aquinas would say, well, 
we use the subject predicate language for a reason because it actually gives us some information about the real world. And so if I can't uh, attribute the predicate to the proper subject, then that means I have the wrong subject. And so uh, the consciousness, like the soul can't be the predicate of the brain because what does that mean? Um, but I can say that is your brain, that is your arm, but what is your? It's not the arm's arm, it's not your body's arm, it's, it's your arm. And so the yeah. you is a non-physical thing because how could it be anything other than that? Because your body is, comp- the matter that composes your body is, compl- is changing constantly. Right? Yeah. Like minute to minute, second to second, the matter, the atoms that make up your body are changing. And so you cannot say that the predicate consciousness or your arm or whatever is, uh, is, is subject to the subject or, or can be ascribed to the subject of matter because the matter is constantly changing. So we need something else. We need some other thing metaphysically that it can be anchored to if we're going to make sense of this. And so that's you, that's your soul. And so that's your primary substance. Um, and so that's, that's where I would go with it. Um, and so, no, I wouldn't say, um, you, you can have a, you can have a, you know, your, your brain emanates or your soul emanates from your brain. No. However, that's where it's instantiated. That's where it is. Um, and so it's intertwined. It's a composite substance in the Aristotelian framework. Um, it's, it's not something that can, that exists outside of it, but also it is also primary. And so that's, that's where I think that in modern terms, it's hard to describe, but I think that is the best way of, of talking about these things. Yeah. I, I think that, that, that certainly is part of it is, is what would the thing that is the I that's talking, the I that's the subject of this sentence preside, right? Uh, And it seems to be that often the way we think about this, whether this is right or wrong, is that there's there's really no, like we can't do a brain scan and say, oh, there's the part of you that's the subject of your own sentences or something like that. Yes, how could you do that? Yeah. Right, but, hmm. Part, part of me wonders if that, I think that that's why a lot of hardcore materialists like Sam Harris will say that the self is a, an illusion or something like that, is mm-hmm. that, that they're, we're unable or uh, unable now or unable ever is an interesting question to point at the thing that is the subject of sentences or something like that. Well, that's the thing. I think categorically, if you, if you eliminate anything but the material, you would not ever have something to point to. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that categorically that's like saying, you know, one plus one equals orange. There's nothing there. Like there, there's no way to get there if that's what you're reducing it to. And so I don't think that there's any way to, to make that leap. I think that you could go, you know, to the Sam Harris and say, yeah, the self isn't a thing. Yeah. But then who, 
who is who is uh who is the self uh diluting <laughs> that's my thing that's my thing and so that's the you know and Harris will occasionally um Harris will occasionally admit some parts of that where he'll say well yes of course I can't act like that right. of course I can't like if my kid, you know, wants to do something or whatever, and I'm, I'm trying to teach them something, I, I have to act as if there's a self there. Yeah. I have to act like you can, you could do other than what your brain is doing. Yeah. Um, and I have a strong kind of bias toward if your theory entail, if your theory cannot be acted out in the world, it's a wrong theory. If it cannot right. be, and, and, and this is kind of a, almost like the basis of science. If you have a theory that I cannot act out in the world, that I cannot experiment on and act as if it's true, mm -hmm. then I think your theory is probably wrong. Right. It's That's just kind of topsy-turvy and paradoxical when your theory is about yourself. Right. right. No, it totally is. But I have a strong bias that if you... If you're giving me a theory and you're saying this is true, but don't act as if it's true or it will totally not work. Right. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I feel like you're, you're probably giving me a bullshit theory. That's, and that's my bias. Um, and uh, that's, that was part of my master's. So a part of my thesis at Duke was about mental causation. And so I, the first part of it was just showing how, our existing models of mental causation is like in particular, the material is missing information and it's missing information about what we're trying, like what is being done, um, the telos, the end goal and all those kind of things. And so all these things are information as part of what's being done. And so, so I made that case. And, you know, I'm in front of this panel and everything else. And so they're saying, okay, but why? Um, and so we're like, we buy it totally. You, you made a compelling case that um, our existing mental, our existing material uh, uh, model of the brain is missing information about what's going on. You have not made the case, though, that. Um, that just because you're missing information, that therefore we're missing a causal mechanism. Mm -hmm. okay. And and so what I said, so my response to that, because I kind of anticipated was I said, isn't that a, the assumption of all of science? Is that if I'm missing information so take the, the wave and light. Um, so take light, for example. Um, if, I, if I told you I have a model of light that treats it as a particle, and I run these experiments, and it, it looks like it's a particle, totally working. And then I have another experiment that treats it as a, uh, and it looks like it's acting as a wave and not a particle. That's additional information about the light. Yeah. So doesn't that suggest to us that our model is wrong? Right. That that additional information about how uh, about the system itself is in fact wrong. 
is sufficient to uh, to make the case that we don't understand causation. Exactly. And so that that additional information, which no one denies, is in itself to me proof that the 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 reductionistic model of material brain as being the entirety of mind is itself wrong. And I don't know how else to get away with that without throwing out all of science. I don't know how you get away with that. That's interesting. Was this a philosophy master's or a cognitive science or or what was? I had a very interesting uh, program. Um, I, yeah, it was a philosophy of mind. Um, so masters in philosophy of mind, but then computer science and computer engineering was, um, was also most of my, a lot of my curriculum. So it, I took a lot of, um, a, a lot of that. It was, it was kind of like, it was a very unique program. And Owen, I studied under Owen Flanagan at Duke. Um, and, uh, and so he was, he was a chair in both philosophy of my, philosophy. He was a chair of the philosophy department, but he was also a chair of the neuroscience department. And so I took a lot, I took neuroscience and cognitive science and uh, a kind of a proto version of ev- evolutionary psychology. But then I got a degree, a bachelor of science and engineering degree in computer engineering, computer science, um, and, and doing that because I, I wanted to see how would we, how would we build something that approximates the human brain um, yeah. and all the things that it could do. And so like I, I grew up a, you know, I'm I'm really into sci-fi, and so I like Star Trek, and you know, I wanted to I wanted to build the Star Trek computer, right? Yeah. And so um, and so that's that's was my that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, and so, yeah, that, that was my background. And so that, that's what I wrote my master, my, I wrote my thesis in that, but then, um, uh, my, my degree is in computer, my batch, my engineering degree is in computer science and computer engineering. And that's what I do professionally. So, okay. So do you think you can build a self or whatever your favorite word is for that? No, I, I mean, I don't, I don't see, I'm not, I'm not totally confident, but I don't think so. Um, I don't, I I don't think that it is that kind of, I, yeah, I mean, I don't think that I can. Um, I think that I can build something that's very deterministic. I I think that I could build something that would pass a Turing test. Uh I don't think that I could build something that actually has uh, anything approaching real agency. So let me tell you about something that I'm working on that I think might be something like the current that has something like the kernel of agency in it, but okay. I'm not quite sure if this is what we mean by agency or not. Okay. So I'm, I work at a hospital right now mm-hmm. um, and I'm a data scientist. So where, where, where are you working? In the in the suburbs of Chicago. I it's a hospital system called North Shore University okay. Health System. Although uh, I should say that I actually only have two more weeks at that job. I'm actually switching. <laughs> but but um, one of the projects that I worked on. So I I mainly do data science and predictive modeling stuff for neurology. So mm-hmm. a patient comes in. They're uh, a new migraine patient. They've never taken medications for migraine before and they just started experiencing them or whatever. So we record a couple pieces of information about them. 
like their symptoms and, you know, do, do run a couple tests and stuff like that. And so we have a predictive model that has seen a bunch of patients like that before. And there are three medications, basically, that are the common preventative treatments for migraine, right? So it's making the decision between three options. And we have, we, we call each patient six months afterwards and say, basically, did this medication work for you, yes or no, right? So we, we have a data set that is variables about each patient, which medication they were given, did it work, yes or no. And so we run this through some sort of kind of like a Bayesian random forest sort of model. And so we have a probability that each drug has the best chance of success. Like say it's like an 80% chance of drug A, 15% chance drug B, 5% chance that drug C has the highest probability of success. Right. And, then, and then it flips a coin, a weighted coin, based off of those probabilities, like an 80, 15, 5 sort of random number, pseudo-random number. Um, and then it gives the patient that drug. And then every time we get a new outcome, we add it to the data set and retrain the thing so that it's getting, you know, a lot, it's being trained off of a larger and larger data set. Sure. And and that sort of adaptive assignment, as it's called, you can show mathematically that that's, under most conditions, the fastest way to learn, right? It's like part of the way between randomization and part of the way between pure determinism. Mm-hmm. So, um, but is is that an agent, right? It, it, yeah. Because right. it's not pure determinism, Right. right. There is right. some randomness that's happening within, you know, the, the, some computer server somewhere or pseudo randomness or, you know, basically using the, the time on the clock and generating a random number from it and using that to probabilistically pick one of the medications. Is that an agent? I think that, again, like I would go back to Aristotle's kind of linguistic analysis what would you ascribe the agency to? Right. Who has the agency here? So uh, some computer code saved on memory and all of the wires and microchips or whatever that connect all of that process together. And and that's the problem. There's no, there's no, there's no, there's no subject that would have a will. Right. That could like make a decision uh, and so it it still seems like it still seems like the the atheist could say, well, that's still determinism. It's just you. It's complex enough no. that you don't know what the deterministic uh, um, outcome will be. But that doesn't mean it's not deterministic. That just means it's it's complicated, yeah. you know. And so. Um, and so, like, in all those kind of questions, you would say, I, I, I would ask, okay, if we're going to say this is a person, if we're going to say this is conscious, if we're going to say that, and, and this came up in Esther and I uh, conversation with Adam, is that, you know, he was talking about, um, you know, uh, consciousness in a computer simulation, mm-hmm. right? And he was talking right. about people, people playing a game and that kind of stuff. And so I brought up, well, well there's a subject predicate problem. Like, you wouldn't 
you wouldn't ascribe the consciousness, which would be the predicate to the subject, the computer. You would ascribe it to the, the person playing the computer game, the, right. you know, the video game, that kind of stuff. And so in this case, like, what would we ascribe the agency to? Well, it's not the electron. It's not the bit um, that's sitting in the computer. It's not the wire that's sitting in the computer or anything else like that. So is there any real agency? Um, and so that's where it becomes like a little fuzzy for me where I, I don't, I don't know of a way of building agency inside of these systems um, in a way that's not easily described as determinism. Um, right. And so you, you can add randomness, you can add complexity, you can add unpredictability, but those in, in themselves, a uh, hurricane is unpredictable. We, we wouldn't say it's, it's, it's an agent um, right. in the same way. So even if instead of using, you know, pseudo randomness, even if it were hooked up to like, you know, some sort of quantum, you know, indeterminacy thing um, where it was, well, depending on your view of quantum mechanics, as indeterminate as you think quantum mechanics is. Right. Um, uh, even then, if it, so it's not just determinism that makes something not an agent. Yeah, I, I think that, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, quantum mechanics gets weird because we don't really know what's going on. Um, and I, and so, I am no expert in quantum mechanics. No, no, and I, I have a cursory knowledge, but I'm not an expert either. But I, I don't think that we really, I don't think anyone really knows what's going on with quantum mechanics. And so I'm not willing to say that quantum mechanics is incompatible with agency or totally pr or incompatible with determinism either. Because um, I, I honestly don't think that we know what's going on. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I guess it, it, it's weird to me that, yeah, I, I guess I don't, I don't know how to answer that particular question. Um, except to say, if there's no, if there's no subject that could do differently, mm -hmm. given the inputs, mm -hmm. then we're in a deterministic system. Right. Well, and then and then it it does get weird if it does have real indeterminism right in the core of its decision making apparatus. Because right. it could have picked medication B instead of medication A. Correct. We we have a probability of how often it will do these things, but yet yeah. it's something inside it the machine algorithm thingy that is right. responsible. Like, right? That, that yeah, almost seems like the right... In your case, it would be a non-conscious aid. It would be a non-conscious component that's making sure. that determination. Yeah. And so that's where it becomes less of an agent and more of a variable. Right. right? Because right. we could easily think about that component as being outside of the system itself. Mm -hmm. And it, it itself being an input variable. Right. right. And so right. then it becomes very deterministic. And so if it's something that's in that is not um, easily separable from the system, um, that is not something that uh, is kind of determined. Like, yeah, I guess that's my thing. The, 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 the random variable introduction into a machine learning system doesn't in itself make it an agent. Um, 
because one could easily conceptualize that as being outside of it. And you could make that an outside variable if you wanted to. Yeah. Uh, and, and train the model that way. Um, and so that's, that's where I don't think that you would, you would say, well, it's an agent now because it's, it's not strictly deterministic, but it's kind of deterministic as a model. It's just that we have this one random variable that changes. Right. Um, and so that's not that's not a will, that's not an intellect, that's not a consciousness. Um, that's just a that's a random number generator, right? And so, that's all it is. I think I think the interesting thing is that randomness in those sorts of models and that sort of iterative process, right, where we have one patient after the other, and we're hoping to get better by the time we see our, you know, 1,000th patient compared to our 500th patient, is the weird thing is, is that randomness helps it, right? Mm -hmm. Ran randomness is useful, right? If, oh. and, and randomness is kind of at the core of how we do experiments. Mm -hmm. There's this weird sort of thing, and it's sort of like that, that Jordan Peterson chaos is the the source from which all, you know, structure comes. Yep. That you, it's like, if you can figure out to a structure that can properly leverage randomness, it can learn faster than a structure that can incorporate randomness. Sure. No, I, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. Um, and uh, just from an engineering perspective, that's spot on. Um, and, and, and from a psychological perspective, I think that the, the one foot in order, one foot in chaos is, is right. kind of way of, of, of living. Um, yeah, I, I think that, I think the big, the big difference is that is the, is the, the randomness in terms of outcome coming from consciousness from like real introspection, or is it not? Mm -hmm. And in the case of, of machine learning stuff is not, it is very clearly not. Um, and in terms of us, I mean, think about it when like redness doesn't exist in the world, like the color red does not exist in the world is not a property of anything. Mm -hmm. It is an experience that you have. Right. Because light reflects off of surfaces with a certain wavelength and then it hits your eye and then it goes into your brain and then you experience this qualia is what David Chalmers calls it. Um, this qualia mm -hmm. of red, this quality, the subjective yeah. quality that can't be reduced to wavelength or anything else. It's completely, it's a categorically different thing. Redness. Mm -hmm machine learning systems never get past right the wavelength they never do and so it seems to me that we're 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 jumping the gun and saying because they can learn and they can mimic some of the same intelligence and learning algorithms and that kind of stuff that like humans are you know good at and maybe even surpass us in a lot of cases and and they can by introducing randomness, we can mimic even more of what the human brain does and that kind of stuff. That's great. They never get past that categorical difference of experiencing it, that qualia. Right, right, right. I would never uh, describe that, that model that I just explained as conscious. I no. also 
I'm not a panpsychist either. Panpsychist would be like, well, kind of. Uh, yeah. Sorry, panpsychist. I know that you're actually more serious than that. But um, but does is agency depend? Does agency require consciousness, or do you think that those can be separated out? Like like simple, like say a bee or something like that, right? I'm sure bees are making decisions, kind of. And that they probably have probabilistic models inside them that tell them where to go look for honey and stuff like that, uh, or, or nectar. But I want to—I'm not sure if a bee is conscious. So it seems to me like agency and consciousness might be separate things. Yeah, I, I think there. I mean, that's a good point. I, I think there's there's certain like gray areas of sentience. Um, and and consciousness that it, it's hard to tease out um, to a certain extent. I would definitely ascribe some degree of consciousness to things other than human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would not say that we're the only ones that are conscious. Everyone else, like they're just automatons and uh, they're basically just biological machines. I don't believe that. I don't think that that's right. And I don't think that Aquinas or Aristotle would believe that either. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, to what degree they're conscious, to what degree they're sentient, to what degree are they just reducible down to kind of the, the neurons that are going on and, and that kind of stuff in their brain, to, to what degree they're deterministic. I think it's an interesting question. To a certain degree, I'm deterministic. Yeah. Um, like you sit a you sit a box down you sit a box of Oreos down in front of me. I'm gonna eat all of them. Yeah. Um, and so, so a certain degree, I'm deterministic too. Um, and so I, I don't know to what degree I'm willing to say a bee or a dog or whatever it is is or is not conscious. I do think that some degree of introspection and uh, sentience is needed for agency. And if you do not have that, then you do not really have agency. Yeah. Um, and so in that sense, I don't think that we could build a machine learning system that has agency because it's not clear to me how we would ever introduce the variable of consciousness or sentience or introspection into it in a way that's not deterministic. Yeah. And um, it also seems impossible to know if we've ever done so. Right. right. What would you, and we're, that, we're, I, all, we're stuck in Turing tests and, and exactly. That, yeah. That's what, that's what a lot of people misunderstand about the Turing test. What Turing wasn't saying, Turing was not saying that if you pass this test, therefore you're conscious. Right. What right, it said right. was, I have no reason to suspect that, that you're not conscious right. um, if you pass this test. And so what he was saying is like, this is the only test we have. So um, I'm taking on faith in some sense that you're conscious and this machine is not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have no real empirical reason to believe that other than kind of an like axiomatic stand, starting point that I have. And that was his point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we have no evidence that the machine is conscious, but I don't have, like, scientific proof that it's not either. Mm-hmm. How could you? 
how could you have scientific proof that the machine is not conscious? That's I don't have scientific proof that you're not conscious. I, right. I, I, and I can't even think of a test that could do that. Uh, no, exactly. And that, that was what was so interesting at the end of the um, the conversation that I had with Adam and Esther was at the end, he was like, I have no evidence that there's no God. How could I? And right. I was like, I completely agree, Adam. How could you? It's not the kind of thing that you can prove. Um, or you can have evidence of that nature to start with. Um, and and it's the same thing with consciousness. You can't have that kind of evidence that something is not conscious. Um, that's not the kind of, uh, not scientific evidence, not if we really like kind of narrow it down to that field, no. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So so I, I sometimes think that uh, things like bees, we'll stick with bees, probably have some way of incorporating randomness into their decision-making. Um, because it seems like we can show mathematically, like I said earlier, that randomness uh, improves the rate of learning. Mm. But it only improves the rate of learning if you get to experience the outcome of your previous decisions. So you have something like memory, right? I did these couple things in the past. They ended up this way. Okay, so here I am now and you have some way of classifying the outcome as good or bad, either binary or on some sort of numeric scale of of quantity of goodness and badness. And if you can do those couple things, then randomness is useful for you uh, to be able to explore the, the, the space of potential upside in your optimization algorithm based off of different actions in different circumstances. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about bees is that, you know, they have kind of a hive mind. Right. Right. And so then it's not just their decisions. It's other, it's other bees' decisions and that kind of stuff. And it's right. aired and, and that kind of stuff. And then you get into the evolutionary framework where you're like, well, um, they don't even necessarily need to learn. They just need to uh, die out if it doesn't work. Um, right. And then, like the the ones that didn't have the genes that produced that behavior, um, ended up, and so it, it becomes like this very uh, strange discussion because the bees don't necessarily have to ever learn in the same way that a machine learning algorithm does, because right. if they if they just die out and another beehive that has um, different genes that produce a different behavior ends up surviving because mm-hmm. um, they have that behavior and the genes that produce that trait and never like all those kind of things. Um, you don't have to, it, it's not like a machine learning algorithm where it has to have a feedback loop. All we need to have is the thing to die in right. order for the, the, the right answer to survive. And so it's almost like we don't need a feedback loop. We just need a bajillion machine learning systems with a bajillion different models, and then we'll just see which one survives. Right. Or, well, um, survival is the feedback. It, right. Right. Exactly. But it's outside of even the system itself, right? Yeah. That, that system never gets that feedback loop because it's dead by the time it would have gotten that signal. Right. Um, and so, and there's no time to react. And so it, it is interesting because it is very different. Um, 
in, in talking about these things and what we do because, yeah, we're, we're looking to build systems that get feedback loops, yeah. that they, they get data. We train with data, but then we get more data and it improves and improves and improves. Um, but that's not how biology works, really. Um, that's not how the evolutionary framework works. You die. That's it. Or kind like, you know, humans, humans get a lot of feedback, right? Like, like pleasure and pain is non-death uh, feedback. And sure. Yes, yes. So, like, within a limited, like, scope, you get some feedback and you change your behavior. And so you have some wiggle room and that kind of stuff. But, um, but like the big thing, you're pretty much stuck. You like sugar, right? Like, like there's some things that are kind of like baked into the cake with you and you're never going to get out of. Um, Right. 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 And, and so of our, our models too, right. They, they only have that shape they do and the hyper parameters and all those things are set at the setting. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it's definitely true. I think that um, it, it is interesting to, to see that, to think about the parallels between kind of biological evolution and machine learning algorithms. I just think that we have way more flexibility with machine learning algorithms to be like, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to introduce feedback loops whenever we see that there's a problem that we're not getting the proper signal back into the model. Yeah. Um, in ways that biology just doesn't have because it evolves too slowly. And so that right. thing just going extinct. And um, I think part of it is that the, our algorithms have the safety of us, right? Yes. We are giving them their survival. They're not dependent on themselves. We're consciously looking at it and be like, well, it didn't take this particular, so we need to adjust it in this way and that kind of stuff. But biology doesn't have that. You just go, you just die. <laughs> That's right. what happens. Yeah. And, and I think in nature, you can kind of see that there's a relationship between um, safety or the amount of time that that organism spends in a safe environment and the amount that it's able to learn. And mm-hmm. I think that there's an interesting lesson about what parenthood is in that, that we're, we're sort of like this wall that uh, mediates between reality and our children. And part of the purpose of that is to let them learn. And one of the roles as parents is to give feedback to our children. Like when they do something good, we praise them. When they do something bad, we don't. And, And part of that is we're like reality simulators where we're taking the harsher outcome that's in the reality and translating it into a softer form of feedback so that right. children can learn until they have to be the ones facing reality themselves. Yeah, and, and the problem, the, the, the danger as a parent is that you remove too much of the negative feedback um, to, to protect your kids. Right. And so, um, and so that's why I like Jonathan Heights. Um, you know, he's involved in that, uh, the organization called Let Grow. Yeah. And so it's kind of like the free range parenting kind of thing. Like let your kids go and experience like experience interacting with other kids and playgrounds and that kind of stuff without the, the comfort of you kind of helicopter parenting them for that reason is because our bias is to protect our kids from Mm -hmm. those things. Right. and just like in a machine learning algorithm, if you do that, 
if you soften the negative feedback loops. Right. They won't learn as well, or they will underestimate the downside risk of certain decisions. Exactly. And so that's, that's the, that's, um, that's what, <laughs> but that's our bias as parents, right? Is to protect right. them from that. But what, what we're really doing is exposing them to more and more danger in the future from right. making those decisions based on what they learn. And it's harder down the line to overcome those built-in biases after the training. Right, um, right, right. Those, those feedback loops come harder and harder after more and more training happens. Right, so, right. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Yeah, that, that there's something softer about us when we're kids, right, than, yeah. than when we're adults. Like, we can, we can learn now, but we sort of more learn, like, intellectual, you know, propositional sort of stuff a lot of our habits and our ethical codes and stuff like that, that's probably relatively set. Right. Yeah. I mean, how much do you, I mean, you change a lot, you change a lot less between uh, say, you know, 25 and 30 than you do between 18 and, you know, 23. Right. Um, and, you know, and you can, uh, I don't think that, you know, by the time, by the time you're 50, 60 like you're pretty much set in your ways and we all like it it makes sense to me I mean just from an engineering standpoint it makes sense to me Mm -hmm. yeah so I let's see here I guess going way back to earlier in the conversation what is it do you think that is unique about humans then uh in terms of our self Well, I, I do think that what's unique about humans, I, I guess I don't like the, the, the question what's unique um, because it, it seems to imply that there's something I do, I do think that there's some degree of consciousness mm-hmm. that is, is present in other um, in other animals, I do think that there is something unique in in that the de- I think it's a degree of order different to humans that our ability to introspect and interact with the divine and um, and be conscious about our decisions is orders of magnitude different than any other organism Mm -hmm. Uh, and any anything we've been able to build obviously anything we've been able to build or anything else like that so and i i do think that's unique about us and i do think that's what you know what what's mentioned kind of or referred to in genesis is like we're made an image of god in that way um that we can we can introspect in ways that no other animal can Mm-hmm. And actually, in, in in super interesting ways that we can we can establish causal relations between things that no other animal can, um, and no other machine can, and even like even other humans that that they grew up without language, if they were isolated from other humans and that kind of stuff, it's really hard to do. Um, and I do think there's something there. So I think that like what's different about us is is it's the order of magnitude. It's 
it's a difference of um it's like the difference between being able to do like basic arithmetic and vector calculus um that it i don't know how else to explain it the, the, the what we're doing is very different um it's not that other animals aren't conscious in some way or sentient in some way um but chimps and gorillas and other primates and everything else like that don't they are not introspective in ways that humans are they do not view themselves the same way we do um no psychological experiment bears that out they get jealous to a certain extent they get um you know greedy to a certain extent and that kind of stuff but we have a conception of ourselves as being individuals um and having worth and that kind of stuff and these are concepts that just aren't present in in those organisms so i think that there's a difference of kind you could you could view it as a difference of magnitude but um yeah i i it's a difference of intellect and will between us and um, our closest relatives i call them that yeah yeah i i think i would agree with everything what you just said it's a hard question like i think that when i look at virtually every use of statistics or machine learning or ai that i've ever seen in healthcare there's almost always a part of it that relies on a human to tell it the the outcome right mm-hmm. Or the the goal, or something like that, and it's almost yeah, always human, just yeah. We we annotate the data. We we tell we it what's the right, data. and it's almost always just improving its ability to replicate the behavior of something that that humans are doing. We, we told it to do yes, right. And it, even then, it's often doing a fractional version of, of that imitation, or the only part of the behavior that can be digitized and encoded to it in a way that it can interact with. And, and I, I don't, I'm not super abreast of all the latest AI research, but I, I haven't seen anything that seems to escape that problem that the axiology or the ethics or whatever is something that AI can do itself. And it always seems to be, uh, almost parasitically dependent on on a human for that sort of thing. Yeah, the closest thing that I that I that I've come across, um, and I still don't think it escapes what you're pointing to, is I have a friend who's a, he, she's she's a Christian and she works at Google as an AI researcher, um, and she um, she's researching creativity mm-hmm. um, in AI. And so what she's doing is she's building AIs that build uh, classical music, uh, <laughs> that composes uh, classical music. Um, and some of it is really good. Some of it, if you just played it for me, I would not know right. that this was composed by a human and a very talented human. Like it would pass. It would the, pass Turing, the Mozart Turing test. Yes, exactly. It would pass that test. It is being trained with human inputs, right? About what is it's being trained to imitate to to imitate the human definition of classical. Exactly, and so it's creating something new 
but it's creating something new based on what we've already given it um, and what we've told is good and that kind of stuff. And it's establishing mathematical patterns um, and creating something new that we may like. And sometimes it's garbage, but sometimes it's actually really good. Mm -hmm. um, and so the closest thing that I could come to of something that's escaping that would be that. But even then it seems parasitic because you're still relying on humans right. to tell you what's good and what's not and to give you that feedback loop constantly. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think that you're, you're escaping that um, really there. Um, I guess uh, to, to steel man the opposite argument, I think you could say, well, but how much of what you like and what you think is good is a result of something you came up with independently of the culture and the other people that you're around. Right. Right. Um, and so, you know, if you're developing art or you're writing music and that kind of stuff, aren't you constantly getting feedback loops from other people about what's good and what's bad and that kind of thing. And so to still man that, it, yeah, I mean, you're right. Like it, uh, I'm not, I'm not an Island in that right. sense. Um, so, um, but so that, that would be the steel man, the opposite point, but yeah, it's still, it's just still parasitic. You're, it's not coming up with it on its own, um, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, her research is very fascinating to me cause that's not, I'm trying to predict, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm trying to, to predict, you know, uh, various other things re related to healthcare, but, um, She's trying to do some creative things, but it is still definitely kind of a, um, it's still dependent on humans to say, yes, that's good music. No, that's bad right. music. Yeah. Right. I, I can, I, I took piano lessons from sort of a young age and I can sort of feel and remember the transition what, from I'm playing to please my piano teacher and to follow her instructions. And she said, oh, I need to be quieter in this section or I need to be more staccato with the notes in this okay. section to the transition of, oh, I kind of I kind of can feel inside myself the way I want it to sound and what what's right. the best to me and sort of f uh, finishing the circle of, of feedback within my own musical taste and enjoyment. And yeah. it, it still feels to me like I, I can't even imagine how AI could could get that that last piece? It's always right. like a kid who's trying to please his piano teacher. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, that, that's certainly where we're at, and so that that kind of continuous feedback loop. Um, and again, I think that's the conscious introspection, though, that mm -hmm. that you're you're aware of what you're doing. Right. Right. And and the and tell -off. I'm, I'm experiencing the the tell off or or the yes the the whatever the the right internalized classical music utility pleasure function or or whatever it is what's that okay sorry my wife's telling me to talk less loud so i i get um, that instruction a lot too that's why i yeah. lock myself in the basement um yes so uh no i think that that's um yeah, that you're missing that telos. 
but you're missing the the or the internal telos that this is where I'm trying to go, mm-hmm. and without the without the introspection or the consciousness to say like I am my own, I am a an individual trying to like accomplish this thing and that kind of stuff without the kind of introspection. I don't know where how you would ever get to that telos really. You could right. imitate it. You could imitate it. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you could ever actually get there, it's not clear to me that you ever could. And quite frankly, like, I don't know how electrons moving in a wire would ever produce it um, in that same way. Like, I don't know how random number generators would ever do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where you could, but I do think that you could imitate it. And so that's where I think that we're, we're too, some, some people are too pessimistic on where AI can go and what it can do and that kind of stuff, because I think we can imitate it um, because really it's a probabilistic function in terms of how humans behave even. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but whether or not we could ever get to true consciousness um, and creativity and that kind of stuff, as opposed to just an imitation of it, yeah, I, I don't think so. I, I don't think that, I think categorically it's a, it's a different kind of thing. So, but yeah, I mean, I don't know, but that's my, that's my uh, kind of, that's my perspective on it. It's a, it's an interesting conversation. I think that, I think that um, Verveke and, and those guys kind of, they, they trivialize it and they say, well, like machines can kind of learn. So that's clearly all our brain is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like everything that we experience and all of our consciousness and qualia and everything else like that is just, it's just really produced by your brain. Um, I guess I'm really, I, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think that that even like qualitatively, like we're talking about categorical problems here. Um, I don't, your experience does not, your, your introspection does not, boil down to neurons firing that doesn't make sense mm-hmm. because no matter how i arrange the computer chip i don't produce consciousness right it's not- or at least we don't think so and we probably have good reason uh to not think so i mean if we do we have no reason to suspect that we'd have <laughs> right you know yeah, there's no reason to suspect so far that, that that's what it is. So um, when Verveke says things like, oh, we have overwhelming evidence that your mind is just produced by your brain, you're like, overwhelming evidence? I, I, we have no evidence yeah. of that. None whatsoever. Um, and that's, in fact, we have opposite evidence. We have, one would think that we could, you know, one would think that uh, even uh, some things like the um, Lede uh, experiment that we used to think was so sound in the 70s where they were measuring brain waves and they told someone, okay, at some point, uh, tap your finger. And so they, were, they had all these electrodes on the brain and everything else like that. And so they said, okay, well, at some point, tap your finger. And so they were measuring your brain waves and then the, the, the neurons leading down to your finger. 
and, and you know in the 70s they they ran these experiments and thought that oh well your brain actually told your finger to tap before you consciously were aware that you were going to do this mm-hmm. right and so the the person's uh the person's report of their decision to uh tap their finger happened after their brain had already told their finger to tap yeah um, and so that that was like for for decades, people were touting this as a uh, as an example of um, a repudiation of free will. Yeah, right? that the the eye in the subject can be seen on a brainwave. Right. Exactly. Um, and uh, and it's only with uh, so in the last year though they they shown that that's just completely not that the 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 experiment was flawed to the extent that it it meant nothing um because uh if you told the person to if you if you did the same thing um and you told the person to uh either uh not tap their finger or tap their finger then the brain waves were very similar right Right, right. And so it's not as if you can just say, well, this is when you decided to, or this is when you didn't decide to, and I didn't decide to, and that kind of thing, because the the brainwave pattern was so similar between you deciding to or not deciding to, you can't really say, well, when did you decide right. um, to, to do those kind of things? And so I don't think that we've... Um, I think that we've we've realized like in the last you know fifteen years that it's way more you're you're way more complicated consciousness and your brain and everything else is way more complicated than we thought to, which makes sense because if you think about it there there are more potential neuronal connections end to end in your brain than there are uh atoms in the universe. That's crazy. That's crazy. That that is absolutely crazy. That is crazy, but it's absolutely true because of the exponential nature of neuronal connections and how many patterns you can make and everything else like that. But that's how many there are. So the idea that you could, oh well, I just measured your brain and this is what you did, and so therefore, no consciousness and free will is not a thing. Is silly. It's silly on the face of it. And it's um, weird because the thing that would be understanding your consciousness would also theoretically need to be a consciousness itself. And right. then is it understanding itself? And then it, it's just, it's weird. Yes. Yeah. You, you get into, a, again, you get into more subject predicate problems here. Right. Like, yeah. What it's, is understanding what? Yeah, um, and that it goes recursively all the way down. Yeah, exactly. And so at some point you're like, ah, no, I don't think this is right. I don't think, I don't think that the material is the bottom line here. Right. Um, and it's it, and so this is where I like the Aristotelian or the Thomistic framework because you say, listen, in in that framework, you would still have neuronal connections. You would still see all these things happening on a material level but there's a different level that is actually informing all of those things. And so um, it makes sense to me that because then the, the bottom level isn't the material. The bottom level is the immaterial, the subject, you, the person. 
And so then the question is, well, could we ever make a person that's made out of uh, circuits and bits? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think so. I, I don't see how that's possible. Um, but but that, that would be the question. And so I don't think that you can – I think what they want to do is say, yes, because you are just your brain. Therefore, I can make another person that's just a machine. Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would, I would like to flip it and be like, are you so sure that you're just your brain? Yeah. Are you so sure about that? So here's the question. I think I know one way to make a conscious agent and that's standard human reproduction. So, <laughs> uh, so what, but that does bring up the question, what exactly is happening when a new human comes into existence? Yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, again, in the Aristotelian framework, you would say, well, it's, so Aristotle always talked about um, potentiality and actuality. Um, and so potentiality is, is potential. It's the ability to become a certain type of thing or produce a certain type of effect and that kind of thing. And so you have this principle of sufficient reason that uh, it takes an uh, it takes an intellect to produce an intellect that you can't derive an intellect from a non-intellect, for instance. So you, you need something at base. And so this is where Aristotle ended up at first cause, the uncaused cause, even he was Greek, but it, you know, he wasn't Christian or anything else like that, but that's how we ended up there because he had this, this principle of sufficient cause that you don't have, um, you don't have things that lack a certain potentiality, potentiality, uh, produce something else that um, is capable of it. So you don't have something that lacks intellect that's capable of producing something with intellect. And so um, here in, in reproduction, you would say, well, you have the potential and maybe even the actual intellect, like you have that, that. And so you're capable of producing something that also has that. Um, and, and we see this in, and so like Aristotle at heart was a biologist. So he would look at other species. Right, right. Bees have, a, have an ability to produce other bees. Not something greater than a bee. Not something that's like conscious and can do calculus or anything else like that. They have the ability to produce the bee. Um, and so... Um, the question here is whether or not we as an intellect have the ability to produce something with an intellect via means other than the biological. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I don't, I don't, I think that's the interesting question. We do have that potentiality. We do, we, we have the potential for intellect and consciousness and all those kind of things. And we exhibit it often. And, and in fact, we, we, you know, once you're grown, you've actualized that. So the question is whether or not we have the ability to produce it in means other than reproduction. And so that, that would be the Aristotelian thing. We're like, yes, what's happening there is you've produced something because you have that act, that potential. You produce something else with also that potential. And you're doing it via biology. Great. Um, but uh, so what's happening there is just that. 
um, is you, you've produced something with that same thing. And that includes, that includes though the immaterial part of it, the form, the soul, you've produced that, you have that potential. And so then the question is, do you have the ability to produce that form, that kind of soul, um, without the biological component of it? Can I produce a computer with it? Mm-hmm. And that's that's where it becomes a little bit. That's where I think the answer is no. Um, you don't have that ability. Um, but that's what's going on is that you're actually producing a soul you're producing immaterial form um via reproduction um that is uh in some ways um uh produced your ability to produce it is because you also have that same form or potential so you have the ability to produce it and so yeah you have a new form you have a new soul that's encapsulated in this little biological machine that's being built. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be the Thomistic framework and, and the Aristotelian framework. And I think that it makes, it makes some sense from a Christian perspective. So, yeah. Although they could, they could take the, the chain back to the, the uncaused mover and inside that unmoved mover is, potential potentials I, or something like that, I presume. Well, yeah, well, all potentials um, derive from the unmoved mover, mm-hmm. right? But that doesn't mean that everything that um, that is differentiated or co- uh, kind of created from the unmoved mover like has all the potentials of the unmoved mover. Right. So, um, so we would not have all the potentials of the unmoved mover. Neither would a chair, neither would a rock, neither would a tree and that kind of stuff. But, but nothing in creation has potential that isn't in the unmoved movers. Correct. And that, that, that is actually part of Aquinas's uh, five ways of proving God's existence. And, and, and so he talks about that, but then he talks about, okay, well, now that we prove God's existence, what is the nature of God? Um, and that's where he talks about, okay, well, God has to be omnipotent because no power that's present in the world um, doesn't derive from God, right? In that way, God is the cause of all powers in the world. In that way, God is all powerful. In that way, God is omnipotent. And so you, you go through Aquinas' arguments um, in that way. So like no knowledge in the world is derived from anything other than God, because how could it be? Because God is the first, the unmoved mover and that kind of stuff. And so then therefore, if God encompasses all knowledge, then God is therefore omniscient. Um, there's, no, there's no place in the universe that God um, hasn't caused to be in that way. God is present everywhere in that way. God is omnipresent. And so you go through all these things, these, these categories of God. So yes, you're all borrowing back to that unmoved mover in that sense. That doesn't mean you have all of those aspects. And so if you are not omnipresent, then whatever you produce also can't be omnipresent. Right. Um, if, if you're not omnipotent, n- nothing you can produce is actually omnipotent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and just because you are something doesn't mean that you can produce anything else via any means either. 
Um, and so it's not, it doesn't follow that just because you're conscious that you can produce a conscious thing by any means, um, or you might be not be able to produce it at all. And so um, it just means that something that's not conscious can't produce something that is conscious. And so that's that's where the the Aristotelian you have to yeah you you have to follow that chain and see like what the genus and species of all my kind of potentialities and actualities would have to like play themselves out before we figure out like what am I capable of producing and then what kind of things am I trying to produce and am I capable of producing it um, in like kind of art what what we'll call artificial ways such right. as writing code. Right. So there's obviously something pretty anti-evolutionary about that. Uh, whereas it, I know that Esther is not a big fan of evolutionary theory, sure. but uh, it seems like if we do buy into evolutionary theory, then it seems like, well, vegetative souls did at some point give rise to animal souls, which did at some point give rise to uh, rational souls. If I'm getting my Aristotelian um, hierarchy of souls uh, in the in proper order. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that what you would have to say is actually that um, you would, uh, I think what you would have to say is that God intervened in those instances that those, those kind of new souls. So this is where like the teleological evolution, like the, the um, theistic evolution would come in and like Edward Fazer and some of the other guys would say, well, Here's the thing, you're all borrowing from God um, in that sense. And so if you want to call it intervention, we can, but um, it doesn't proceed naturally from um, atoms making life um, and, and life making vegetation and vegetation making animals and, and whatever it is, that, like however we want to construct a tree. So... You say well, we're all borrowing from God, and at some point, God is intervening. Okay, I think Edward Fazer's critique would be: Listen, just because God is intervening in a metaphysical sense doesn't mean that there wouldn't be a material description of what that looked like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so um, that's where I think that some sometimes the like intellect like the intelligent design folks go wrong um that they they get out of the 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 mathematical description of what like irreducible complexity looks like um and those kind of things and they get into something more like philosophy um and i think that they i would say that what they're what they're doing, they're just going too far. I think that what their critiques are good in so far as it goes, but um, even in an Aristotelian or a Thomistic framework, you would say, listen, I still expect there to be a, a material causal chain here, um, but there might be a me- metaphysical intervention here to produce something greater than what was there before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so can we ever see evidence left behind of metaphysical intervention 
or would that be sort of the same trapper problem of trying to prove God? I mean, it depends on what you say. Like, it depends on what you mean by evidence. Right. Um, Fair and enough. So, yeah. And so, like, that's that's where it gets, like, really, it gets really interesting. No, I mean, I, I don't think that we could, we would ever see physical evidence if we're, if we're going to really um, reduce it down to um, that. However, I do think that the ID guys are actually uncovering real metaphysical evidence because what they're doing is they're saying, listen, mathematically, this doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Mathematically, this would not have happened, but it somehow did. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that like, if you want call that a miracle, I don't know, but like clearly physically it did happen. Right. But it's so unlikely as a pattern as a mathematical pattern that like there's the, the likelihood that this particular set of genetic mutations or whatever would have happened within this time span. There's just not enough time mm-hmm. for it to happen, but clearly it did. Right. Clearly it did. So what are so, we to say? So then it's a probabilistic argument at best. But, I think so. Yeah. 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 I don't think, I don't, I don't know where, like how would you would get, um, anything other than a uh than that because at some point i mean the the nature of what we're claiming is such that there's not going to be a physical thing that you're going to be able to point to right there won't be like a signature god did this here yeah, or, or something no like that. this sign that we're going to all agree on no that's not the kind of thing that we're talking about and so um yeah, so I I don't think that that's not what we're getting to, but I think what we're getting to is like something metaphysically happened here, um, and like the material description. Fine, I have no I have no qualms with your description of what happened in the past. I have no qualms with like the you know the the your your past description of the fossil record, and this one is related. This animal is related to this one, and I like we and chimps share kind of a common ancestor, if you want to call it that and that kind of stuff. But at some point it becomes kind of meaningless to me because interesting. I don't think that what you're talking about is, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that the mechanisms that you're talking about are you're, you're restricting yourself to just the material causation description, which is not super interesting to me. Um, and you know, again, Aristotle had four different types of causes, right? So, right, right. Yeah, I I couldn't name all four. I know one is final and one is material, and then yeah. there's two other ones, like formal, efficient. yes, formal, final, um, efficient, and of uh, and material are the four. And so, you're describing just one of those, right? Very good. That's fine. And, um, and, and it's and like I've what known. we were saying about mind earlier, that describing neurons and that sort of thing is only one layer of the cake. Right. And, and leaving many of the three other layers and perhaps the most important layer off the table and somehow thinking that we don't need that because we have a good enough. Uh, that's, like, cause. that's like me. If I asked you, you know, you know, if I asked, if someone asked me, like, how did you get to work today? 
and I just gave them a line by line description of the atoms that were bouncing around in my brain mm-hmm. and, and down to my arms and my legs and everything else. So I'm like, well, Adam one did this and Adam two did that and Adam three did this and whatever. Um, and I gave you that description. It wouldn't answer the question of how I got to work today. Right. Right. I would, you would say, well, but if I told you, actually, I, the form, decided via an act of will to drive my car to work today in order to get to my job. Like okay. I've, 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 I've described formal, efficient, and final cause. Mm-hmm. And I've completely left out the material. Right. Right. In that description. And maybe Which your car was the, the sum total of the, the material. Or, yeah. Yes, exactly. And so, yeah, it's not that the material is completely absent, but like I didn't really mention the material at all. And so um, what, uh, which is more informative? Right. Which has, which, which statement or description has more information than the other? Mm-hmm. And we would say, well, actually the latter has more information. I didn't like, even though like you might have, you could put a, like, you know, thousand volumes of all the atoms that were interacting and all the descriptions of what happened in between me getting up in the morning and me going to work, but it doesn't describe, it doesn't contain nearly as much information. Right. Really as what I just said. Again, this was my point in my thesis. Okay. If that's true, um, what does that say about our model? Is that we're missing most of the information. Mm-hmm. In the same way that me giving a model of light as a particle um, is missing the information of me giving up the like the, the experiment data from uh, light behaving in like a wave. Mm-hmm. And so if that's true, we should really rethink that model. And this is where I go back to Aristotle because he was like, he was completely unwilling to get rid of those models. Um, But like, this is information. This is like, I can't describe these things just purely materially and contain all the information. So my causal system needs to be more encompassing than that. And that's where I get back to that. You're saying, no, I'm sorry. Like you giving me the material causal chain doesn't, doesn't answer my question. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't describe, it doesn't describe the system. It's a bad model. No models are true. Some models are useful. That's not a, that's a useful model only insofar as I'm a neuroscientist or something like that, but it's not useful outside of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and it's not true. So we shouldn't take it as all encompassing. And that's what I see like Verbeke and a lot of these guys doing is, um, is reducing it down and acting as if that's the entirety of the model. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think that's right. I don't think it's philosophically warranted. Um, and I think there's a reason that guys like Aquinas and Aristotle rejected that. Yeah. And I think that we see that in artificial intelligence. It's like artificial intelligence really only is operating at the material cause level. It, 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 it doesn't have the ability to determine a T loss or a purpose. 
are to intuit what the the t loss of some other system that we can observe is the way we can and then even to choose among possible uh, t losses and purposes and decide to act in that direction that's the thing that it's always parasitically aping it's funny that we right. use that word um, <laughs> it's aping us in terms of our ability to do that and we don't have the faintest clue about how to build that it seems no, no, of course. No, we don't. I, I, you know, we, we try to, yes, we're, we're constantly trying to, to ape it in the sense that, you know, we're trying to get it to mimic what we're doing. Um, even when we're making those kind of like, like uh, intuitive choices, but then we just like, we just give it more information and then more, here's what I would have done in that situation. Right. So that's, in, in that sense, we're always aping. It's always derivative of yeah. what we're doing. And, and in no some ways, it, it can exceed the capabilities of an individual human because it can, it can do something a million times where in, you know, in an hour where we can only do it a thousand times in a lifetime. Yeah, so well, there's, there's only so many in some respect, but it's still relying and derivative upon the telos that a human gave it to do so. It, it can learn from a million, you know, if you look at like oncology, it can learn from a million cases of, you know, pancreatic cancer or whatever right. it is. Right. Um, and, and like a doctor can never do that. Right. A, doc, a, doctor, but a doctor tells it that that's a pancreatic cancer slide. Exactly. Exactly. You're learning from the sum total of other humans and that kind of stuff. So it can be better only because it's learning from the sum total of all of human experience. Right. Right. But that's not the same thing as being human. Um, right. And, and that's where like, we're, we're really being flippant about the entire conversation. Um, I think uh, to think that, Oh, because it can be better than us here. Therefore it is us um, or it can be right. reduced to us or, and that kind of stuff. And you're like, no, uh, that that's a non sequitur. That's really bad philosophy, actually. Right. Just because you can ape us in a certain situation, or even you can do better than an individual human, um, that doesn't mean that what you're doing is the same as what a human's doing. Right, right. So, yeah, I think that's a very important thing. And I think a lot of it just gets muddled because we use this word intelligence. And it's like, the things that make us human and special are intelligence and it's intelligent and it's more intelligent. So therefore it's fair enough. And it's like that that's missing so much of the complexity that it, it's, it's so misleading. Yeah. And that's why I want, I like to separate out whenever I talk about this, like what's different, what's different about you than when I do talks about this, what's different about you versus an AI or, you know, uh, or what makes an AI artificial intelligence? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I always like to say, listen, I like to think of intelligence as ability to learn. And so in that sense, an AI is intelligent. Sure. It can learn. Um, you, however, are conscious. Mm -hmm. And that's different than what the AI is doing the way that you learn is, you know, in some ways similar, like some of the same ways you learn, we, we can mimic in, in, 
AIs and that kind of stuff, but we can't mimic your consciousness and you're learning. That is one of the, the, the real ways that you learn is by conscious introspection on real things and the real nature of reality and not just like patterns. Right. Um, we we can determine that there's this pattern out there called pancreatic cancer and we can decide that even though everyone's pancreatic cancer is different, there's still some uniting thing that's pancreatic cancer and that we don't like it and that we're going to get good at recognizing this pattern and do something about it. And then we can employ artificial intelligence to be like, okay, here's, uh, you know, things that 100,000 doctors labeled as pancreatic cancer over the course of their careers. Now you learn all of that experience and then you'll be superhuman. But it yep. didn't decide that pancreatic cancer was a thing or even what it was or that we should care about it. It has no idea. No. <laughs> it's a fancy prediction algorithm. That's all it is. Right. Um, right. And so, yeah, people, people really oversell. I mean, I think it has great, both productive and destructive um, capabilities in like the modern economy. Um, and, and so I, I'm not like, I'm not one to say like, Oh, there's nothing here. There's nothing to pay attention to and that kind of stuff. But like, if, if you're worried about Skynet or something like that, I don't know what to tell you because that's yeah. like, I, like, that's not what we're building guys. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't even get this thing to clean its own data. So <laughs> it's like, yes, totally. I was like, do you know, like it takes me three days to, to tune the algorithm it takes me four weeks to just clean the data to get it to be able to use the data so yeah. like that's most of our job is just to like get the data in a place where it even knows how to handle it so it's really nowhere near taking over the planet for sure yeah. although that cleaning data process gives us plenty of time to listen to podcasts it, well, that's the thing. I always like, hey, my my back propagation algorithms like training, so I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm listening to more Paul Vanderclick. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's funny. All right, well, it's getting kind of late here, um, so uh, I should probably wrap this up and head to bed myself. Yeah, no, yeah. I, it's getting it's getting late here. I've got. I've got two kids and one will be up very early, I'm sure. So sure. All right. So I'll stop the recording. Uh, right.